Good morning, Grace. Now, this service, you guys ought to be up, right? We've already had one service. You guys ought to be wide awake, raring to go. One o'clock's not even an issue for you. If we stay that long, it's no big deal. We just got done first service about 10, 15. I was like, oh, my goodness. So um, it's good to see all of you. I hope you had a great Christmas. And um, I want to talk to you about clothing real quick. How many of you love to get clothes for Christmas? How many of you really don't want clothes for Christmas? Honey, I love everything you buy me, though, okay? So, but I would rather go get my own clothes. How about you guys? Wouldn't you rather just go get that, right? Well, um, you have a choice to do that. Of course, if you receive a gift from your wife and it's clothing, I would encourage you husbands to love it. Um, We have spiritual clothing that the Lord desires us to wear. And I wanted to just remind us of that in our reading this morning. And so I want you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians in the third chapter. And uh, we will look at the spiritual clothing that the Lord desires us to put on. I think you're going to find as we read through these things, um, difficult, right? Difficult, but not impossible. And not impossible because if you know Christ, you have the Spirit of God that lives in you. And uh, believe it or not, these things can happen through us with the help of the Holy Spirit. Paul tends to write about who we are in Christ in the front of his letters and then how we should behave as believers in the back part of his letters. Just kind of a pattern that he has. And in Colossians, it's really no different, although he has some pretty specific instruction in chapter 2. But I want you to stand with me as I read verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at these spiritual, spiritual clothing the Lord desires for us to uh, put on. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. That word holy means set apart. So if you've been set apart by the Lord, you're grateful this morning. Okay? It says, put on a heart of compassion. And kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience. How's that list looking so far? Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love. We run into that term a lot in the New Testament the term agape, and it's important to be reminded about what that means. Agape love is unconditional love, and it's sacrificial love. We're not waiting for people to arrive at a point we can love them. Okay, that's important to hear. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Isn't that nice that the peace of Christ can rule in us? Think about the events of this year, and man, I'm glad I serve a God of peace. He says, To which you indeed you were called into one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. We need to ask for help, don't we? So that we can put on these spiritual clothes so that people are able to see us as ones who represent our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. And we can call upon that daily and you will help. And we're thankful that we have the Spirit of God that resides in us if we belong to you. And so the Helper is within us. And he helps us. He guides us. He leads us into all the truth. And Lord, um, your Spirit is available for us on a daily basis. I pray that we would yield to the Spirit in our lives. That we may please you in word and in deed. And do all for your glory, because it is truly about your glory. Thank you for the privilege we have to meet today. I pray that our minds are here. While our bodies are here, I pray that you would help us with our minds, that we would be here today, that as we worship through song and through the word, that you would be pleased in all that we do. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. At the um, right before it was time for me to come up and speak, and he wanted to just share some great news with the church family, so he asked if he could do that at the beginning of the service, and obviously. Uh, we want him to be able to share with us the great news that he has. And so, Bob, I'm going to ask that you'd come. I asked uh, Shad, uh, Thad. <laughs> I was thinking of fishing. <laughs> uh, if I could do a little show and tell this morning. We just received uh, the Bible in the Kalinguya language um, just this week. Uh, we received our first copy. Uh, all these last, uh, these past week, they were doing the dedication of the uh, Bible in, uh, in five different locations. Normally, we would have had just one big dedication there at our center in um, Nueva Vizcaya. Uh, where we have our student center, but because of COVID also, uh, they decided to just do a dedication in each one of the chapters. There's 33 churches now, and there's uh, about five chapters, so the churches in one area uh, are a chapter, and they, they meet at normally every month, so uh, they did their dedication there. But uh, I just want to express to you on their behalf, uh, thanksgiving and thank you for the part that you have played in supporting us and, and supporting the translators there. 
and uh, supporting the ministry so that this could be possible. Uh, some of the uh, translators that were working with us, uh, some of them are children of the first uh, helpers that we had to do the New Testament back in 1983. And, uh, and I remember when uh, we had some believers and they were really anxious to get God's word in their language uh, to be able to read. Of course, when we got there, they didn't even have a written language, so we had to do uh, an, an alphabet for them and, uh, and do a linguistic uh, analysis of the language in order for them to, uh, to, us to be able to learn the language correctly and then pass it on to other missionaries that came and worked with us. And I remember while I was translating, uh, they were so anxious to get God's word in their language, one old man came to me and he said, look, you got the, I don't know why it's taking you so long. You got the English over here, you know, and you know English. Now you know our languages. Just read it over here and write it over here. Uh, it just uh, is, it doesn't work that way. Uh, they don't conceptualize the same way we do, and so there has to be a lot of creativity in, uh, in doing that. But we were able to uh, trans then when we did a revision of the New Testament in 1998 and completed in 2001, uh, the, the translator that worked with me most of the time with that, uh, when we finished the revision of the New Testament, she said to me, we want the Bible in our language. We don't want to be just satisfied with the New Testament. And I said, well, go for it. She said, can I continue? And I said, yeah, and I'm right with you. And so um, it was uh, um, with the help of uh, Wycliffe Bible translators, the, uh, they were holding seminars because they were training also mother tongue translators to do the, the Old Testament in some of the larger uh, languages that they had. And so... Um, when Margie worked there with them, um, and they they were uh, training her, and also I was mentoring her to uh, be a consultant uh, to uh, for uh, uh, checking other languages. Well, Margie just came back from Israel after learning Hebrew, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, she's also a, a, a translation checker, and now she's been to India, and uh, she's been to uh, uh, Bangladesh, um, and Indonesia, and checking translations in other languages. So uh, we're we're still not finished, though. There's still a lot of uh, commentary work to be done. Uh, there's a songbook that needs to be reprinted. Uh, so continue to, uh, uh, I'm not uh, calling myself retired, even though I'm in re retired status with New Tribes. Uh, but we are still able to work together uh, with them through um, um, the, uh, what do you call that, um, live streaming uh, I was able to, uh, with Robbie's help, uh, uh, 
do a, a message through at uh, grade school theology that uh, they could listen to uh, during the dedication of the, the Bible there. So uh, we're still in contact with them. We're still working with them. And there's still a lot of, uh, they, they want to have all the, the uh, chronological teaching also reprinted for um, uh, the outreach ministries that they have. So continue to pray for the Kalanguia that they will be uh, uh, diligent in their uh, outreach and, uh, and continuing on with, with the ministry there in the Philippines. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bob. Well, as we start our time of worship uh, this morning, I trust everybody had a great Christmas. Um, I know for us, our traditions were a little bit, uh, got messed with this year. Um, and that's kind of, this is the last Sunday of 2020. It wouldn't be right if our traditions didn't get messed with a little bit, right? Um, that's kind of a theme for this year. It's been a tough year. A lot of bad news this year. A lot of what I would call uh, gut punches, uh, news that really hurt uh, this year, I know in our family we've we've experienced that, and uh, you know. But another theme that kind of has emerged the last few months has been that, in the spite of that, uh, we see believers. Uh, they say God is good. You've heard that phrase. Some bad news will come across, and you hear the phrase "God is good," and we believe that, right? But how do we know that? That's something I've been thinking about. How, how do I know God is good? What's my evidence? What is, what is my anchor that God is good? And for me, guys, it starts with what we celebrated a few days ago. And it goes through to his death, his burial, his resurrection. It's, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. Uh, because, guys, I'm such a sinner. And when I say that, I'm not being facetious. We, we all are. Uh, <laughs> every day, I actually steal breath from God. Because my heart was born in rebellion against him. Every day, every hour of every day probably, whether in thought and sometimes even in deed, I offend a holy, beyond our concept to grasp, a holy and righteous creator God who gives me life and breath. I'm an offense to him in my thoughts and my deeds. God doesn't owe me anything. If he owes me anything at all, and he does, to balance the scales of justice correctly on a cosmic level we can't even grasp, to make it right, I should go to hell. I should burn forever in hell. That's what I deserve. And yet, and yet, <laughs> I get to go to heaven. Okay? Why? Because God is good. Okay? God is good on a level we can't fathom. And you have to look no further than the cross to understand that. That's my anchor, Jesus Christ. That's my anchor that God is good. If I ever doubt it, I simply look back and say, no, he proved that once and for all 2,000 years ago. He's good. But the question for us is, and as we celebrate and as we worship here in a minute, y'all consider this. I invite you to consider this question. Have you opened your heart to him? That goodness is there. That kindness is it's concrete. It's proven. But are you building walls and pushing him away, or are you accepting that goodness and that kindness in your life? So let's all stand, guys. Y'all think about that as we worship the Lord together. We're going to start with a...
a newer version of a song that a lot of y'all are going to know, so y'all sing out on the chorus with us. Uh, the verses and the bridge may be a little unfamiliar, but y'all sing on the, on the, on the chorus with us.
Came sin, who knew no sin, that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself, carried the cross. Love so amazing, love so. Jesus Messiah. 
Christmas
fields of white the blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will ride among the saints my gaze transfixed Jesus
One day he is coming, and it will be a glorious day for all who are in Christ. Take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Mark in the sixth chapter. And as you're turning there, I want our minds to think in terms of Things that are overlooked. Now, one of the players that are overlooked on a football team would have to be the offensive line. There is a player that I believe is the best player in college football, and he's not a receiver. And he's not a quarterback. He's not a running back. 
That's where your eyes take you when you watch a football game. You're interested in those who, quote-unquote, make the plays. But without the five guys on the offensive line, the quarterback is in a lot of trouble. And so those five tend to be overlooked, and there is one player at the University of Alabama named Landon Dickerson who is the best player in college football. I believe it as much as I'm standing right here. I want him to be a Dallas Cowboy. He is a giant of a man. I don't know his dimensions, but he appears to be very tall, and he appears to be like a guy if you were serving um, lunch on Thanksgiving, you would need one turkey for him. He is a huge man. People are overlooked at times, and sometimes it's not even intentional. Sometimes we overlook things, and it's intentional. Sometimes, however, we look overlook things and it's not intentional i think it's true when it comes to the scriptures it's like that for us i think we overlook things not necessarily intentionally but because maybe we're just not interested maybe not as interested as we should be like for example when was the last time you or i read through the book of leviticus that's a book that tends to be overlooked i remember being in college and our Old Testament professor said to us, I want you to read the Old Testament, and we had so many weeks to do it, and Malcolm Cooper was my roommate, and we were through Exodus in a very short period of time, and then we came to the book of Leviticus, and our eyes were like that. That book tends to be overlooked. If you were just going to talk about sections in Scripture... When you come to genealogies, people tend to overlook genealogies. Isn't that true? Absolutely. I would encourage you to read Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. They are very, very critical to the story of our Savior. Sometimes people overlook the ends of books. Like, for example, one of my favorite letters is the book of Colossians. And that last part, all Paul does is talk about people the people that were in his ministry with him. But that kind of tends to be overlooked. People get to verse 11 of Colossians chapter 4 and go, eh, how important is that? Really? How many of you believe that God's word is inspired? That's good to know. How many of you believe that the word that we have, all 66 books as we have them, are imperative for us to understand. That means we can't leave anything out. Thankful I went to a school where they didn't leave things out just because they were difficult or because they came to a setting and it was like, well, you know, how important is that really? If you think about a football team, you don't want to overlook the offensive line. When you think about the scriptures, I would encourage us that we would not overlook any verse. They're all important. They're all important to our understanding of the greatest love letter that's ever been given to man. So this morning, we're going to deal with a section that is, I believe, somewhat overlooked. Now, it's set within the context of a bigger thing that's going on that every one of you know about. 
if you've been in Sunday school, in children's church, when you were young, you heard the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. How many of you have heard that story before? Did you know that story appears in all four Gospels? Then the life of Christ, the only other event that we have in terms of a miracle is the resurrection of Christ in all four Gospels. This is the only other one that's mentioned in all four Gospels. So if it's mentioned in all four Gospels, you have to do what? Well, now, there's something important for me to understand. However, many of you probably this morning could come up and teach the feeding of the 5,000. But do you know what happens on either side of that setting? Can I tell you something in a short sentence? It's all about Christ before, all about Christ after, and all about Christ in the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. But it's before that miracle takes place that I want us to focus our attention on. And there are four verses but they lead us to other things. And you might look at it initially and say, I'm not quite sure how interested I'll be in this. And that's okay with me because I'm very interested. And it, the Lord took me to this section a few weeks ago. And I did not know that it would even be today that I would deliver this message. But I knew that at some point in time, the Lord wanted me to disseminate this information. And so it happens to be today. Most people, when they come to the last Sunday of the year, are looking for a New Year's message. Um, well, if you came for that, I guess you're going to walk out disappointed. But if you have come with the mind that I can be taught by the Lord, even the things that are kind of in the cracks and crevices of Scripture, then I don't think you'll leave disappointed at all. In fact, what I think you're going to do is leave wanting to dig more because there's so much and the scriptures for us to consider. Let's read verses 30 through 34 of Mark chapter 6. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And then this is a parenthetical statement. He says, For there were many people coming and going... And they did not even have time to eat. They themselves, excuse me, they went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. Verse 33. And the people saw them going. And by the way, a lot of people. And many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities. And got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Let's pray together. Lord, help us this morning to be able to appreciate your word that we would walk away wanting to dig into those things that maybe we think we're familiar with, but when it really comes down to it, we might not be as familiar with it as we ought to be. Help us, Lord, we pray by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you should have a handout in front of you or on your seat. You may have sat on it. I don't know. 
But there are three things that we want to consider that occur right before this incredible provision by the Lord. Now, if you study the miracle itself, what you're going to come to find is that the Lord is saying to his disciples, I am the provider. While he fed the masses, he was teaching his disciples. Now, just before this takes place, in the context of the passage, other things are going on. All right? So you have really, in context, a full uh, set of ministry things going on in their lives. In fact, you can see that the apostles had just returned from a mission trip. How do you know that? Verse 30 tells us that. It says, The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now, the author, notice he uses the word apostle here. This is pre-death and resurrection. So when you get to look at a term like this, which does not occur many times before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you have to say, well, what's going on? Well, the term apostle means messenger or one who is sent out. Well, who is being sent out? The apostles. I didn't make this statement first service, and if you're watching again, I know they just went home and turned the TV right on, right? Wanted to watch it again. Think about who's a part of that in this setting. Even Judas. Think about that a little while. I've thought about it a lot. Wow. Well, they're on this mission trip, and we know that because they report to Jesus all that they had done and taught, but we know what they did on their trip, if you look in verses 12 and 13 of this same chapter. Notice what it says. They went out and they preached that men should repent. That's a message that's still important for today. You know, in Strong's Concordance, the word repent has three different thoughts in terms of this particular setting. It means to change one's mind. Would you say today that people need to change their mind, the masses do, about the Lord Jesus Christ? Answer, yes. People need to understand that he is the absolute only way to the Father. You say, well, that sounds harsh. No, it's just true. I don't know how we got to the point in our culture where truth seems harsh, do you? But we have. The apostles went out and they preached a message of repentance, meaning to change one's mind. It also can mean to think differently about something or someone. It also can mean to feel guilt from sin. That'll preach. Our culture needs to understand what Paul wrote in Romans and the third chapter in his dissertation on the state of man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who? So when the apostles went out, they preached repentance. That message still resonates today. It still has its place. Although you don't find many people preaching that today. 
Verse 13 says, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You say, well, where in the world were they getting this power from? Verse 7 tells us, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That had to be incredible. <laughs> right? But they went out. They were doing ministry. And so in the context and the big picture of what was going on in the feeding of the 5,000, before that, the apostles had just returned from their mission trip. You say, well, how significant is that? I think you're going to see that in just a minute. Well, it might be a few minutes, but just a minute. The second thing that you see here is that the mission of preaching and healing was being felt. It was having impact. How do you know that? Well, verses 14, 15, and 16 tell us that. Look at this. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. Whose name? The name of the Lord Jesus. That's whose name. You say, who's this Herod? It's Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. So it had even gotten to him. What had gotten to him? Verse 14 tells us, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him, being Christ. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. They tried to identify him and what's going on with him and the apostles. And verse 16 says, but when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. <laughs> That's quite an amazing statement when you think about it. But who was it that he's talking about? It's Christ. It's Christ. Verse 14 tells us that. And the rest of that section in verses 17 through 29, Mark recalls for us the beheading of John the Baptist. Now it's interesting in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 14, it tells us in this same setting that when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. It's Mark that points out that the apostles were with him. So there's a lot going on right before this takes place, this miracle that we all know about. There is a mission trip. They come back and report on the trip to the Lord. We do that. We go on mission trips and we come back and report, don't we? We tell others what took place. They come back, verse 30 tells us, they report to him all they had done and taught. I wonder what Judas said, if he said anything. That would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? That would have been interesting. We don't have the answer to that and that's okay. But it's clear that the apostles had had a long time of ministry. And when you have ministry, and when you're doing ministry, what happens to you? You become tired. So in the context of the passage, there are a couple of events going on. This mission trip and the beheading of John the Baptist, which leads us then to verses 31 and 32. So not only do we understand that these guys have been on a mission trip, and they come back and they talk with the Lord about what they had done, 
but we see the Lord's concern for the apostles. Now remember, this is all before this miracle takes place. Notice what verse 31 says. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. He said, why in the world did he do that? Why is he calling his apostles to do that? In short, the answer is ministry is hard. Okay? I know you think that ministry might be easy. Well, the pastor, he only works one day a week. How hard can it be? Notice what the context tells us here in verse 31. He invites the apostles to come to a secluded place and rest a while, and he tells us why. Notice at the end of the verse, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. You say, how many people? Lots of people. Whole lots of people. Ministry equals people. Right? And when you're working with people, guess what happens? You work with all kinds. You work with people who are grateful. You work with people who complain. No, they don't do that. <laughs> I'm reminded of that verse in Philippians. Do all things without grumbling and complaining. That's some good practical advice for the church. So the Lord Jesus invites them to a lonely place because of the demands of ministry, and he knew them full well. He knew they were tired. He knew they needed that respite. I want to argue this morning that I believe the place of solitude for them was in the boat. It was in the boat. In fact, I, as, I believe that very strongly. I believe their place of rest was in the boat. You said, well, that, how do you know that? I don't for sure, but that's what I believe. The Bible tells us, verse 32, that they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. You say, well, okay, then they went somewhere. They went to some town or some village, some place. Well, eventually. But the Bible tells us that they went by boat. I've been to Israel in 1994, I had the privilege to go there, and one of the things that you notice about the Sea of Galilee is that as you walk around, there is no place along the shore where a boat would not be visible. You can see. So I'm like, well, I'm going to come to church, and I'm going to share this information with these guys, and they're going to say, yeah, right. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do my homework. And I'm going to find some information that will help you in case you were to doubt that. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Ray Vanderlaan. Uh, Ray Vanderlaan does, does these video series called Faith Lessons. Um, and he does them with focus on the family. And Ray Vanderlaan is a tremendous Bible teacher and historian. And if you ever listen to his videos, he is all about context and history and what was going on at the time so that like if he has a series um on the uh, the the children of israel um crossing the red sea and and so to understand kind of how 
uh, that took place and what was going on and, and the terrain and everything. I mean, he just covers it with you. So you walk away going, whoa, there's a lot there to consider. Well, it's the same here. Ray Vandalon, in writing about the Sea of Galilee, he says this. Set in the hills of northern Israel, the Sea of Galilee is nearly 700 feet below sea level. It is nearly 8 miles wide at its widest point and more than 12 miles long from north to south. In places, he writes, the sea plunges to depths of 200 feet. I remember sitting out on the balcony... And, and what was really cool about having jet lag was I was getting up at 4.30 in the morning, and I'm like, man, Lord, you walked out on that sea. And hey, Peter walked out on that sea. Um, there's a lot of events in the life of Christ that took place around that sea. And then Ray goes on to write this. Many first-time visitors are surprised to see that from any point on the shore, all other locations are visible. He's been there several times. I've only been there one time. Now, what has the Lord offered these apostles? Rest, a place of solitude. In fact, verse 31 tells us that. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. And so they get into the boat. And we know they end up getting out of the boat. The text tells us down in verse 34 that they went ashore and we know in verse 33 that there's a whole lot of people following them in fact what does the text tell us about that it tells us they ran together on foot from all the cities and if you do a little bit of study about where they went to it would have been about a 10k 6.2 miles about that long and it tells us that they saw a large crowd well who's this crowd this crowd of people that's about to be what? Fed. Now that's a lot of people. And the Lord's calling these disciples out to do what? Rest. People do not equate to rest all the time. Would you agree with that? So where's this place of solitude? It's in the boat. I'm convinced of it. Just as sure as I'm standing here. It was in the boat. And I'm also convinced that the one that could recharge their batteries was in the boat with them. That's good stuff. Listen, how many of you need your batteries recharged from time to time as a believer in Christ? Can I tell you something? He never leaves you and he never forsakes you. He's always with you. That's good stuff. Say, I need one of those. I need to get out in the boat with the Lord. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But these apostles had that opportunity and they did that because of the demands of ministry. Now, it doesn't appear that their rest is very long, but that's okay. He didn't tell them about the length of the rest that we have recorded. He just invites them into the boat, and they go to this place of rest, which I believe was on the sea. And who better to rest with than the Lord? You know, there's been a lot of fret and worry and concern this year. Whatever word you would like to use, might I encourage us that we would get in the boat with Jesus. And that we would rest. Rest in Him. Did you know that's possible to do? It's possible to rest in Him. He wants His people to rest in Him. 
So that's what the Lord is offering to these apostles. And I believe the rest equates to him. He's their rest. He's the rest they need. <laughs> He's the rest we need. Right? If you're always watching CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, whatever your preference is, I would say you're not going to get a whole lot of rest. Because our world is going through a crisis. Man, and I'm just thinking, Lord, in this crisis, you're saying, get in the boat with me. That's what he's saying. And we need to get in that boat. I want to ask you a question. This didn't apply so much to the, some of the illustrations I used in the first service, but where is your place of solitude? Where is that for you? Like, I was thinking about, like, moms, Right? I mean, moms are generally looking for what? Five, ten minutes, fifteen, especially if you have small kids. So I told them first service, I was like, hey, look, if a mom needs that place of solitude, you know, it might be in that van with all those kids in it. You say, Dad, that sounds terrible. But it might be. Because you know what can happen as you're driving along with those small children? You know what they do at times? They fall asleep. So instead of going 15 minutes to the grocery store, Drive to Tanny Hill. As long as they'll stay asleep, hey, that's my place of solitude, my place of rest. You know, we're not promised that we're going to get a whole bunch of that. But I think we ought to take advantage of it when we do. Where is that place of rest for you? Where is that? Um, I was given a gift to play golf and I used that gift I went out to Ross Bridge golf course this past Tuesday it was the best day of the week to go it was beautiful it was a little cold but not too bad well my intention was to play 18 holes of golf and I had three guys with me and after nine holes, one of the guys drops out. He said, Thad, my hip's hurting, my leg hurts. I'm like, so you can tell my friends are older. And so he gets, he gets out of the cart, and he's gone. He's, I take him back to the clubhouse, he leaves. So I'm down to two friends. So we continue to play, and we get through about number 16, and then it gets kind of dark. And when I say kind of dark, kind of dark. You hit the ball, and, and you could see the trajectory of it and kind of the direction it was going, but, you know, that was about it. And so we get through 17, and my two other friends decide they can't play 18 because it's just too dark. And I'm like, I'm playing 18. And so I had a good round going. <laughs> and I was going to finish that hole. Well, we picked up a guy on 13 that was playing by himself. So we tee off, and we're both in the fairway, and um, he was a little further than me. The reason is because he was 36 years old, come to find out. But he's a little bit further than me. I had about a four iron to the green, and I hit the shot, and it, on the 18th hole there, they have water in front of the green, kind of almost along the right side and in front. Well, I hit my four iron, and it's going. I could see the trajectory, but then it's just gone. And I'm like, well, there's no splash. So that means I'm up there somewhere. 
And so we get to the green, and sure enough, it was right in front of the green, just a little bit in the rough. He's chipping from the sand, I'm chipping from the rough. We both get on. Well, riding down 18, it was like the Lord was saying, hey, Thad, you know what you got to do. You ever have one of those moments? Like you just, I just knew what I had to do. It wasn't about golf. It was not about golf anymore. I'm like, hey, Lord, I got a good round. It's about golf. He's like, Thad, it's not about golf. It's about that guy. So I introduced myself. He introduces himself. And um, we're about to putt out. He had six feet to putt out, and I had four feet. He made his putt. I missed my putt. But the, at the time I got up to putt the ball, I knew it really wasn't about the putt. I said, I got up there, and I'm, I've, I've got my putter down, and I'm ready to putt. And I said, John, I said, um, what's Christmas to you? But you never know what kind of answer you're going to get. You know? He said, it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm like, yes. And so we began to talk. And um, about life and about what was going on in 2020, and this is what I came to find out. I said, well, what have you been doing with 2020? Because it's kind of been a different year. He said, man, Thad, he said, my wife and I, we've just been taking this opportunity in this season of rest. I was like, dude, I got my illustration. In the season of rest to read the word together and study the word together and pray together and share the gospel with others. And I'm like, that's good stuff. See, instead of us taking this respite and doing other things, maybe the Lord during this time of rest, even in 2020, is wanting us to reset our priorities and focus on things that have eternal value to them. And so, where is your place of solitude? I don't know where that is for you, but I would encourage you to think about it. Then we come to the last part of this section in verses 33 and 34. And we move, from, uh, we move from the concern for his apostles to the compassion for the masses. Now, I'm not quite sure that the apostles were all in on that. Because if you go down to verse 35, it says, When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away. <laughs> right? I mean, hey, look, we just had this rest with you, and that had to be enjoyable because you're resting with the Savior. And then you see all these people along the shoreline, masses of them, and they get there ahead of him. The Bible says in verse 33, the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. And when Jesus went ashore... The Bible says he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. <laughs> you look at that and you go, well, how important is that? Oh, very important. Let me um, define the word for you because the central word in verse 34 is the word compassion. The Greek word is splagnizomai. Say that three times in a row. It literally refers to the bowels or the guts of a person. Figuratively, it means that we're deeply moved. When was the last time that happened to you? Where you were deeply moved in your gut for somebody or for the masses. 
Has that happened to you? I think I would say it should happen to us. It should happen to us in this year where things are not quite as normal as they have been before. How's our compassion meter? How does it read? Well, for many, it's read this way. I'm concerned about the number of people that have COVID and have died from COVID. Hey, listen, guys, I'm right there with you. Okay? I'm concerned about these people who have passed because of this disease. But did you know that 2020 is not irregular? People die all the time. Did you know that? We just happen to be going through a pandemic, but people die all the time. Did you know that from February to November of this year, that just heart disease alone, the way they do statistics is from February through January of the next year. So from February through November, over 600,000 people had died in the United States from heart disease. It's a lot of people. What do you say? A lot of people have died from COVID. A lot of people have died from other things. Over, well, close to, through November it was close. I'm sure by now it's over. I don't know that for a fact, but almost 500,000 people have died from cancer in the United States of America from February to November. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And then we know what COVID has done, just in the United States. How's our compassion meter with those families who have lost loved ones to heart disease and to cancer? I'm not making light of COVID or shoving it to the side. But what I'm saying is this. Don't, don't miss this. Our compassion meter should always be there for people first spiritually. Think about it. Over 600,000 people with heart disease. How many of them were lost? So... This passage forces me to think about compassion. When was the last time I was deeply moved about the spiritual lives of people? The word describes a sympathy that starts in the deepest regions of a person's being. I mean, you've had that happen where you're like, man, I feel it down here. That's what I'm talking about. That's the word here. The Latin word is compati, and it means to suffer with you say well that doesn't sound like fun well it's not hey guys ministry's tough when you're dealing with people it's not rosy all the time in fact i would say most of the time it's tough i've been in it for 30 years full time and there's been lots of suffering and it's taken on different forms. But did you know you can have joy in the midst of all that? That's a side note. Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse 15 tells us that we have to be a part of all that. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, what does it mean to suffer with? Well, Paul illustrates it for us in Romans chapter 12 verse 15 as he's going through this list of, hey, this is how you ought to behave as a believer... 
you know the verse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. I like that. I'm good with that. You good with that? Yeah, I'm good with that. You know the next part? Weep with those who weep. Life's hard. Life's hard. We don't know who is, what's around the corner, but we know who's around the corner. Christ. How's your compassion meter read for the masses? Well, the Bible tells us how it did with the Lord. Look in the verse, verse 33. It says, he saw a large crowd. You say, why are we talking about the word saw? Well, we have to. The word saw is a very important word. Strong concordance defines it this way. The word refers to looking at someone, but also perceiving what is going on inwardly with a person. Uh Uh-oh. So the Lord just didn't see this mass of people. He saw what? He saw what was going on inside of them. Do you know that He knows everything that's going on inside of you and of me all the time. He's fully aware of everything that goes on inside of us. That's good to know, isn't it? Aren't you glad he does? The book of Hebrews tells us that in another way. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says... For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature, look at this, there is no creature hidden from his sight. Not one. So when the Bible says he saw the masses, he saw every one of them. (laughs) That's incredible. So he sees everyone in here, and he sees all of us perfectly. And at the same time, he sees everyone in the world, and he sees all of them perfectly. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows what's going on in our lives, and he knew absolutely what was going on in the lives of those people. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Bible tells us. Look what it says. We don't have to guess. It says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. Look at this. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You say, I've heard that before. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> right before he sends them out. Okay, this, so this is before he sends them out. You will recall in Matthew's gospel and the ninth chapter, listen to this. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. These people needed the Lord. They needed the shepherd. Kind of made me appreciate Psalm 23 a little more as I was studying this. The Lord is what, David says, my shepherd. Who's your shepherd? Is the Lord... I like what William Barclay said about this particular phrase. 
William Barclay was a Scottish author and preacher in the mid-1900s. <laughs> Which wasn't very long ago. Some of you were alive in the mid-1900s. Right? But he was a Scottish author and he was a preacher. And he said this about the sheep and the shepherd. He says, sheep need a shepherd to lead them on safe pathways. Question. Where are you and I going to get the information about how to walk down safe pathways? Where? The book. The book's going to give us exactly the way that we need to walk. It's going to tell us. Sheep need a shepherd to lead them on safe pathways, he says, to help them find food and water, to defend them against danger, to find them when they wander off, and to restore them to the fold, to help them find food and water. I like food, and I need water. I like food. You like food? You know what Jesus said about food? He said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. See, there's physical food, and we all need that. And we all need water. You think about the woman at the well and the offer that Jesus made to her. But there's the spiritual life that we have. We need the food that comes from the Lord, and that's right here. We need that water that can cool us off when we're in troubled times, and that comes from the Lord. William Barclay says that sheep need a shepherd to defend them against danger. There's a lot of danger in our world out there, young people. A lot of danger. The enemy is at work. And one of the things the enemy is trying to do, I believe, in a really strong way today, is change your mind about who God is. And you have a decision to make. You can govern your own life, or you can allow the Lord to govern it. Now, can I tell you what's going to happen if you allow, if you govern your own life? You know what's going to happen? You're going to have points of real misery. You say, yeah, but what about if the Lord guides my life? You're still going to have times of misery. But you know what? The Lord's going to be there with you in that misery. He says, to defend against danger, to find them when they wander off, and to restore them to the fold. What do we do with believers that wander off? What do we do with them? Let me tell you what happens a lot of times. We let them wander. We say, well, you know, we can't do anything for them. Well, we certainly can pray for them. But can I tell you what the Bible says about that, just real quick? Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, you're not high and mighty, and I'm not high and mighty. We're going to rescue these people. The picture in the Greek language is of, of someone in a ditch. And they've fallen in the ditch, and they need help to get up. What do believers do? They extend the arm, and they help them. What do we tell them? The truth. 
And then what do we do? We assess our own life. That's what we do. These people were sheep without a shepherd. They needed the shepherd. You say, well, okay, they needed the shepherd. Well, if they needed the shepherd, well, he was there. Well, what did he do? In the context of the passage, we know what he did. He fed them all. That's not all he did. You know what? People, when they come to this section of Scripture, focus almost entirely on the five loaves and the two fish and the multiplication of those loaves and fish and the abundance that was there because there were 12 baskets picked up. And we say, yes, that is awesome. Our Lord is the provider. And he doesn't just provide up to a point. It's over in abundance. But if that's all we know about this setting, we've missed the mark. You know where the Lord starts with his compassion? Look at verse 34. He saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what does the Bible say next? And he began to teach them many things. He began to do what? Teach. We need to be concerned about people who are going through physical suffering and people who need, that don't have food or whatever. We, we do. We need to be the, those people that are willing to stand in the gap there. But not forfeiting the gospel. The greatest need those people have in their lives is not a piece of bread. The greatest need they have is the bread of life. <laughs> it's Christ. And that's where the Lord starts. He starts by ministering to their greatest need. How does your compassion meter read? The first time I was ever met with that question was at a point in time where I was wanting to relax and enjoy myself. I was in New York State. We were in New York State. At that time, we had one child. The Lord added to that two other boys. We had a men's group that went to Shea Stadium in New York City. There's no easy way to get to New York City. But you go to New York City and you go to Shea Stadium. We had, we had a chartered a bus, about 75 of us. So we're looking forward to going. We get to Shea Stadium. We take our seats. We were closer to the blimp than we were to the field but that was all right because I was at a baseball game. And early on, my pastor said, Thad, I want you to go get me a hot dog and a Coke. And he handed me five bucks. I came back to my seat and I said, you owe me 15 bucks. He wanted his change. I'm like, hey, this is Chase Stadium. And so for 20 bucks, you could get a hot dog and a Coke. And I'm sitting there and I'm enjoying the game. We're having a good time. And, and all of a sudden, it's just like... This time stopped. This is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced, one of them in my life. I'm sitting there, I'm eating my dog, I'm drinking my Coke, and I, all of a sudden, it's like the Lord was saying, hey, Thad, look around you. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's just deep in my gut. I had this, this movement going on. Like, and it wasn't the hot dog. It was, hey, 
you need to look around you. And so I did. And I don't remember how many Shea Stadium held, maybe 40,000, 50,000 people. But the place was packed. They were playing the Cincinnati Reds. And that was back Chris Sabo and that team. They were a pretty good baseball team. And so I was watching the game, and I was for the Reds because Yankee fans don't like the Mets. And so I'm watching the game, enjoying myself, and all of a sudden it's like, hey, Thad, I want you to look around at the masses of people. And I did. And this, it's like this message just came across the screen. How many of these people are lost? Probably a bunch of them. Do you care? I'm like, well, yeah, Lord, I care. I, mean, I was having a conversation with the Lord while everybody else was watching the game. That was the first time in my life when it comes to the masses of people that the Lord stopped me and said, hey, look, you need to see beyond this baseball game and this hot dog and this Coke that cost way too much. And you need to see these people and what's going on in their lives. You see, when you come to this context, right before the feeding, which these people needed to be fed physically, right? The Lord could meet that need. But the greatest need they had, they needed a shepherd. How do you see the masses of people? Because you do. You say, Dad, I don't see masses of people, 40 and 50,000 people. No. You may not see that, but once, once in a while, you see masses of people at a grocery store, don't you? Yeah, you do. You see masses of people when you're driving up and down the highway. And they're irritating the stew out of you. So I told them in the first service, what if we had this mind? Instead of allowing the inner irritation to rule us about the person who just cut us off, what if we said, you know, Lord, I don't know this person, but I want to pray for their soul. They'd come to you. Instead of rushing through a grocery store and saying, hey, everybody get out of my way, maybe it's, Lord, whoever you bring in my company that day, help me to be bold for you. Well, let me give you three things and we'll leave. Are we allowing the current events in our world to distract us from the mission? These are all things you have to consider. And if so, will we confess it and return to mission? I kind of think that's going on, and that's just a personal opinion. I think this year, maybe our, the temptation is to take our eyes off the mission. <laughs> the temptation for these disciples would have been to be off mission, right? I mean, all, all these people following them, the last thing they want is more people. But the Lord steps out of the boat and sees the people and sees their need. Secondly, are we taking advantage of the rest the Lord gives us in our lives? You know, use this year and in the months to come to get closer to the Lord. There's other things there. I'll let you work on that yourself. Third, compassion is part of our spiritual wardrobe. That's what we read about earlier in Colossians in the third chapter. At the top of your handout, there's three questions for you to consider, and you need to take those home with you. Do we see people? The answer is obvious, we do. But how do we see people? That's a good question 
for us to consider. And then are we seeing them in terms of their spiritual need or needs? When I was in New York City at that game, I was met with, how do I see the masses? That next year, I was met with, how do I see individuals? We were in Philadelphia. We had taken a youth trip to Philadelphia to the inner city. Now, you have to understand where we lived. We lived in the country. the town was 5,000 people. The village was 2,500 people. The church was about 400 people, and 400 and something. And so we're, we're at this church, and we're serving the Lord there, and the Lord gives us an opportunity in the youth ministry to go on a trip to the inner city of Philadelphia with a bunch of country kids. And so I had to explain to the parents, I'm taking them to the inner city, and per capita, this particular area we're going to is the second most crime-filled area in the United States. No big deal. And they didn't, they didn't care. I actually didn't get any comeback on there. Like, yeah, we'll let them go. So we were going to have this, this street witnessing. We are going to have this block party thing for the kids and do puppets and drama and all this kind of stuff. And um, I'll never forget it. We're playing basketball and uh, one day, and I'm playing with the kids, and I get a little tired. And so I'm, uh, I'm going to go sit down uh, over here on the steps and there was a kid sitting on the steps. And this is inner city Philadelphia. And we're sitting on the steps. And in the area we were in, there was about a 12-block area that was nothing but concrete and brick. That's it. Places where people lived. I sit down next to this young man, introduced myself. We were talking. He said, Mr. Thad, what's it like out there? I was like, What's he talking about? He said, what's it like out there, like, where those buildings are, and what's it like out there? I'm like, oh, my goodness. He said, I've never been out of an eight-block square. He said, everything that's around me, I mean, like, there's school and there's grocery stores in this eight-block area. I've never been outside of that. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness. I grew up, and we traveled everywhere. But then I thought, you know what? That's not the greatest conversation I need to have with this young man. While that was intriguing to me and just kind of a shock to my system, I said, you know what, Lord? The greatest need this young man has is not to go out of that square block area. The greatest need that young man has is to know you. And I shared the Lord with him. Guys, I don't know how it is for you. I don't know how your compassion meter reads. But I would say that probably the time that we're going through in the United States right now is one of the greatest times that we have to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does your compassion meter read? And can I encourage you, the next time you're in the Word and studying, don't skip over things. There's lots of great stuff to learn. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm amazed just in reading through this section of Scripture, just your attention to detail. Matthew tells us 
He gives us all the detail, all the instructions you had for your disciples, your apostles that you sent out. Goes into a lot of detail there. And I'm amazed at the detail in terms of you're just recognizing that, Lord, your, your apostles needed rest. And then probably when they were still wanting to rest, you come ashore and you begin to teach again. It just shows me, Lord, that you truly, and we know it, but you truly love people. And you see what's going on in the lives of people. You see the hurts and the disappointments and the fears. Lord, I pray that we would see beyond just looking at a person. That we would come to understand where they are spiritually and their need for you and their need for encouragement. There's a lot of people that you put in our pathways. and I just pray that we would be led by your spirit and sensitive to your spirit as we live each day for your glory. Thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to explore all of the passages, all of the scriptures that you've given us, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. All these things I pray in his name. Amen. I want to just make a couple of announcements. I'll let you go. On your chair, you should have had, should have had this handout, Join a Small Group. Um, those begin uh, two weeks from today on Sunday nights. Uh, you can take an opportunity to read through it. And just maybe decide and pray about that, how you'd want to be involved in that. Also, um, on the other side of the back wall in the, in the foyer out there, there's a sign-up sheet. One's for ladies' ministry. And the other one is for New to Grace. If any of you are wanting to know more about uh, the church, uh, we'll, we'll have a New to Grace class sometime in January. And we will let you know when we uh, get that, nate, that date nailed down. We'll let you know about that. But um, I just want to make you aware of those couple of things. Guys, I hope you have a great New Year. And I might see you next week, and I might not. depends on if the Lord comes back. All right? So I'll see you either here or there. All right? I hope. All right, you are dismissed.